0: For Brown Political Review, I'm
1: Rachel Lim. And I'm Annika Sigstad. This is BP Radio. Our view of global politics often comes from headlines and fades quickly. For those of us who are from the United States, events in other countries often seem distant. But we know, of course, that global politics often follow similar patterns of nationalism, settler colonialism, power. Today, we focus on the case of India, the world's largest democracy with 1.3 billion people and a story that's really at its core about journalism. We want to explore the journalism and media surrounding the Indian occupation of Kashmir.
0: What narratives are there? What stories are true? We'd like to start this episode with a disclaimer. Some of the perspectives you are about to hear may be jarring, and we at BP Radio do not support or promote any of them. But they exist as some of the many, often false, often prejudiced, ways that people discuss
1: Kashmir. We hope by naming them, we are able to better explore their credibility and lack thereof. But before getting into who said these things and why, we need to start with some background information on Kashmir and who better to hear it from than some of our interviewees themselves.
2: Well, I think what Modi has done is that he has successfully molded the idea of Indian nationalism to become Hindu nationalism, Mm -hmm. such that the popular press is saying things like, oh, this is, as you said, to use your language, the kind of resurgence or rising of this kind of Indian nationalism. But what he's done is it's basically it's a it's a rise of Hindu nationalism that has begun to stand in for Indian nationalism, much as white nationalism has begun to stand in for American nationalism.
3: The one thing
4: I really want to highlight for people, don't read and view the Kashmir issue through a lens of this person against that person because it's far more complicated than that.
2: And I think the one thing that can be said consistently about Kashmir is that the voices of the Kashmiri people um, have consistently been thwarted.
5: I think initial shutdown was uh, <clears throat> as I said was you know imposed by the government I think part of the shutdown was also because people were angry people were disillusioned and dejected with the government of India there uh, was widespread anger and there was you know they showed it by shutting down their their shops
2: and so, you know, for a place that is often described as the most beautiful place on earth, it has seen um, some of the kind of, Horror. yeah, worst yeah. horrors too.
1: On August 5th, 2019, the Indian government, led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi, revoked the semi-autonomous state of the Muslim-majority state of Jammu and Kashmir, which it had held since the 1940s. Kashmir
0: was granted this status under Article 370 of India's constitution. In August, the government locked down the state, sent in troops, and detained thousands of people. Schools were shut down, offices closed, and phone and internet service were
1: shut off. Anti-government militants have also killed and threatened civilians, and some people cast dissenters as Pakistani-backed terrorists. Jammu and Kashmir has been a disputed territory since India and Pakistan split in 1947, and the region has seen unrest, rebellion, and warfare for decades. There are many sides to the conflict in Kashmir, and Kashmiri voices often get lost in the tug of war between India and Pakistan. Many media representations on Kashmir don't always tell the full story. So we wanted to explore
0: competing narratives and understand how these representations shape our understanding of Kashmir.
1: One might wonder, what does this actually have to do with Brown University? Of course, we aren't here to understand all of the political and historical dynamics involving Kashmir. That could be a whole podcast series itself. But we are attempting to really reckon with the idea of how we can understand Kashmir the different views, frameworks, paradigms, and narratives surrounding the area. We have the people who view this as a battle between Pakistan and India, those who focus on the religious components, those who advocate for Kashmiri liberation. And of course, journalism plays a huge role in that. It is critical to consider this question. What does it mean to be a journalist presenting the story of Kashmir, and in what ways is that politicized? We want you to keep this question in mind as we listen to this next interview.
0: Because we are becoming partisan in how we present reality. We
5: are uh, ideologically driven to an extent where we feel that we have no responsibility towards truth. And I feel I, who was trained in old school journalism, who I was trained in this Walter Cronkite philosophy, have a responsibility towards not just my profession, but towards my reader as well. And I feel that you all are my readers.
1: That's Aarti Tiku Singh, a journalist. In October, she testified in front of Congress for the Congressional Hearing on Human Rights in South Asia. She spoke of her experiences visiting Kashmir after the abrogation of Article 370. My name is Aarti Tiku Singh. I'm a journalist based in
5: New Delhi. I've been in the field for almost two decades. I have worked on Kashmir for almost two decades. I was born and brought up in Kashmir, but then my family, along with their community, was displaced in 1990 when uh, Islamist insurgency broke out in Kashmir Valley, which is part of Jammu and Kashmir state, which acceded with India in 1947. But in 1990, there was a Pakistan-backed, insurgency Islamist insurgency which broke out and that targeted minorities of Kashmir Kashmiri Hindus are uh, were a minority community in Kashmir and we were driven out in 1990 and I and my family and the rest of the community grew up uh, uh, I mean not my family I grew up in destitution uh, as a refugee in my own country in uh, a region called Jammu, which is part of the state, but away from Kashmir it is um, separate by almost 300 kilometers. Uh, I studied in Jammu. I worked in J&K as a journalist. I moved to U.S. I went to Columbia University and did a master's in international affairs from Columbia and went back. To India, and I've been working as an editor with the India's largest English newspaper called Times of India.
1: In that clip we heard at the beginning, she positions herself as ideologically and politically neutral, a Cronkite journalist. As we were doing our research, though, it became harder and harder for us to see her that way. Taku Singh said one thing we think we can
0: all agree on.
5: The truth... Uh, is that Kashmir is far more complex and far more, uh, I would say, complicated than it is being presented at the moment. On August 5th, the government of India revoked special status of Jammu and Kashmir. Now, to even understand what it means, you need to understand what Jammu and Kashmir was to begin with. Why do we say revocation of special status? What is its history? But most of the reportage that you have read, whatever you have seen on television, it sort of overlooks the 72-year-old history of Kashmir. It overlooks the fact that Kashmir is not a normal place. It is essential to understand
0: the history of the state of Jammu and Kashmir.
1: Well, yeah, that's one of the points of this podcast. But I feel like there is more you wanted to say. Well, this is what she says after that. It is a place that has been afflicted
5: with
0: insurgency, with Islamist insurgency for the last 30 years. It's true that violent insurgency has existed for about the last 30 years, but this insurgency is for Kashmiri self-determination. To call it Islamist is to paint the intricacies of the political motives at play with an Islamophobic tinged
1: paintbrush playing into stereotypes about Islamic terrorism. So I guess one thing to think about as we continue to listen to this audio is what actually makes Kashmir so controversial. Is it the fight for self-determination? Or is it years of military control and violence? These questions represent just a few of the reasons
0: it is so difficult to parse through any writing on Kashmir. But this isn't the first time the word Islamist has been thrown around when talking about Kashmir. To understand this phenomenon, we must focus on one interaction at that congressional hearing Taku Singh was at. Representative Ilhan Omar accused Arti Taku Singh of poor journalism, not telling the whole story. Uh, thank you,
4: Chairman. Um, this is a really important discussion, and I'm, I'm glad we're, we're having it. Uh, Missing as a report a reporter's job is to find the objective truth about what's happening and report it to the public. You have an enormous audience at the times of India and you have an enormous responsibility to get it right. I'm aware of how the narrative shaped by reporting can distort the truth. I'm also very aware of how it could be limited to sharing only the official side of the story. The press at its worst worst when it is uh, a mouthpiece for a government. In your version of the story, the only problems in Kashmir are caused by what you call militants. The only people protesting what to break away from India and are all nefariously backed by Pakistan. You also make the incredible dubious claim that the Indian government's crackdown in Kashmir is good for human rights. If it was good for human rights, Ms. Singh, it wouldn't be happening in secret.
0: On Twitter, defenders of Taku Singh lashed out, spreading egregious lies alleging that Representative Omar had married her brother and alleging that she was a Pakistani agent. Over and over again, and in our interview, Omar was referred to as an Islamist for, well, for being Muslim and advocating for Kashmir. Of course, Twitter battles are messy things, and Taku Singh did not endorse all of these comments, though she did reblog some. But this can serve as a reminder that Islamophobia quickly creeps
1: into conversations about Kashmir, both in the US and India. So, how can we navigate this? How do we talk about and report on highly politically charged issues? We don't have all the answers, but we did not make the decision to include this interview with Tikhu Singh lightly. In our interview, Tikhu Singh touched on many topics, Islam, the importance of history, India's role in Kashmir, and she generally holds a positive view of the abrogation of Article 370.
0: She also discussed the notion of the leftist-Islamist nexus and repeatedly alleged that terrorism in Kashmir was Pakistani-backed, a trope playing into unsubstantiated fears of Islamic terrorism.
1: We want to dive into her views precisely so we can understand the precarious and powerful role of a journalist in understanding Kashmir, how one can shape public discourse and inspire Twitter battles. Taku Singh touched on India's presence in Kashmir both before and after the abrogation of Article 370 in early August. She kept coming
0: back to this notion of terrorism in Kashmir and the stronghold she believed so-called terrorist groups had on Kashmir.
1: I think what's interesting is to see how this view of a so-called terrorist stronghold influenced her understandings of the lockdown in Kashmir.
5: The only thing that you've been reading in the mainstream is that, you know, India has... uh, imposed a lockdown on Kashmir. It is true that there was a lo- lockdown in Kashmir uh, in the first two weeks imposed by the government of India, but that lockdown instantly transformed into a lockdown imposed by militants. The lockdown that you are seeing today has been imposed by jaish Ahmad, by Hezbollah Mujahideen, by lashkar e terror groups because they issued posters asking people not to resume their normal activity not to go to their day-to-day you know, uh, chores. A 65-year-old Kashmiri Muslim shopkeeper was shot dead because he defied the militant diktats and he went to open his shop. A family of four were shot at, again, Kashmiri Muslims because they wanted to sell apples in the apple market. So this side of the story you will not read the uh, ethical way of you know reportage or presenting truth is to present all sides to present all reality all complexities all
0: nuances and all gray areas of a landscape
1: let's take a step back and fact check this in our research it was hard to find verification of what was causing the lockdown in kashmir certainly there has been some militancy but there's also increased militarization and fear because of it. It is hard to find information about Kashmir during the time after the abrogation of Article 370 because of the media and communication blackout, in which people could not use phones or access the internet, making it hard to reach out and tell people what was going on. Taku Singh's view of the media and communication blackout is also
0: steeped in an understanding of Kashmir as a violent place.
5: But I felt that as a journalist, I made that trade-off by seeing that there is no violence on the streets, nobody has died. And this sort of does not even register in any of the reports that you have to see that this is a violent place. You cannot apply normative standards to a place which has seen massive violence. This is not to justify communication blockade but one must Uh, and you know look at any of these problems from the perspective of what is at stake is right to life less important than right to communication so that's how you should frame this
1: question this is to say her view is that the blackout was problematic but might have been worth it if it decreased violence but did it we can't be sure It's true that violence exists in Kashmir, and it's true that the violence in people's daily lives has often been overlooked in media trails. But where is this violence coming from? Taku Singh ascribes to the view espoused by the
0: Indian government. It's because Pakistan has
5: uh, refused to uh, shut down its terror camps, refused to uh, use terror as a policy, as a strategy in Kashmir. Uh, So, with that violent background in mind, any government would assume uh, or would anticipate that there will be violence um, because uh, they have taken a position or taken a decision with which many people in the valley, for example, were unhappy with. You know, the mainstream politicians were not happy with it. The, uh, the locals are not happy with it. That's why they've gone to the Supreme Court. So the government clearly did something which I would say uh, we don't know. We ca- I can't really say whether the majority is against it, whether a minority is against it. I don't have a scientific way to make that assessment. But clearly, a large number of people were unhappy with that decision and the government of india felt that uh, given uh, pakistan's role in kashmir and given pakistan's intrusion and their infiltration of militants in kashmir this this situation will you know uh, go out of hand and it will snowball into a major violent crisis for india if they do if, do if they do not shut it down if they do not shut down the communication because in the past Communication has been used uh, to mobilize violence. Wow, that's a heavy
0: allegation.
1: Yeah, and in a way, it removes the power and agency of Kashmiris to do anything, claiming that all movement is Pakistani-backed, which has never been proven. And alleging that violence is caused by Pakistan rather than India
0: which has been documented by the Human Rights Watch as causing high levels of human rights abuse, from mass killings, to disappearances, to torture, to rape, to suppression of political action and speech.
1: There are just so many things going on in journalism about Kashmir. You have to choose which violence you choose to focus on, which era you decide to begin the Kashmiri story at, Pakistan and India and their role, if at all. And get this. There's not only those general distinctions in how to approach the issue,
0: there's also the very particular legalistic lens you use. Tiku Singh refers to Article 35A.
5: Permanent residency laws of Jammu and Kashmir have been problematic, uh, not just for uh, women who married uh, outsiders, but also for uh, Pakistani refugees who had migrated to Jammu and Kashmir in 1947, they did not have any rights despite the fact that they've been living in Jammu and Kashmir for the last 72 years. They did not have any rights as citizens of the state. Uh, they did not, uh, then uh, Dalits, for example, also did not have the same rights as Dalits in the rest of the country. Because the federal laws, the central laws, did not, do not automatically um, extend to Jammu and Kashmir unless Jammu and Kashmir wanted uh, to you know, accept them. Then, of course, um, uh, the LGBT rights. Uh, again, India at the federal level decriminalized gay sex. So, which was a liberal you know, position. Uh, in the rest of India, women marrying outsider, insider, doesn't matter, they are entitled to inheriting property of their parents uh, and passing on their property rights to their children. But in Jammu and Kashmir, there was this regressive, illiberal, gender discriminatory law that that refrained me from passing my inheritance to my kids only because I'm married to an outsider. It wasn't necessarily true for men who married women from the outside. The women, once they got married to the men in JNK, would automatically become the citizens and the state subjects of the state.
1: Huh, that's not something you usually hear about in the news. I think it shows another lens with which to think about this. A legal lens.
0: Of course, this legal lens sort of indicates that. Taku Singh also serves as somebody who has experience talking to people on the ground, and we don't want to discount that. One thing she said particularly stuck in our mind. She talked about the evolution of self-determination. When India was being decolonized, Jammu and Kashmir was a princely state, majority Muslim but run by a Hindu, and was supposed to be given a plebiscite to choose which one it was going to belong to. Uh,
5: so if you are, uh, you know, first of all, a referendum, the plebiscite which was promised to Jammu and Kashmir, I'm now talking about facts, that was promised, it had only two options, India and Pakistan, there was no option, for Azadi. So, Azadi is a later day edition It's a political slogan uh, which uh, has been highlighted especially after September 11. Pre-September 11, uh, people who were, uh, you know, fighting for separatism in Kashmir, they fought for uh, not separatism, not just separatism from India, but accession with Pakistan. But if you if you are going to add say independence and it's a hypothetical nobody would yeah. would would add that because the moment you say independence there will be other political groups uh and as i said jammu and kashmir is a diverse uh, you know state it's almost a microcosm of uh, you know india it's as diverse as the rest of the country is jammu and kashmir state was like ladakh region is buddhist dominated jammu is uh Hindu uh, Dogra, you know, dominated. Then Kashmir was Muslim majority. The moment you say independence, the are going to say, "How did you decide for us?" Uh, Kashmiri Hindus who were driven out of uh, Kashmir in 1990, they're going to say, "How do? You, how can you give? Indep- how can you put independence on the table as an option? Uh, because uh, we are going to say that we want our own uh, piece of land, our own." Uh, you know, slice of Kashmir uh, because we are the indigenous minority. So the problem with the option of independence is that any state will have to then uh, allow other options to be on the table. And I don't think any government can, you know, feel responsible enough to do that. Having said that, if independence was put on the table... I would say, uh, and uh, India and Pakistan, I would say Kashmiri Muslims, only Kashmiri Muslims, uh, the majority would go with independence.
1: So for Ardi Taku saying independence seems messy and unthinkable. But what about those people for whom independence and
0: self-determination is the lens with which they see Kashmir?
1: people who spoke to the Congressional Subcommittee on Human Rights in South Asia, Natasha Kao and Angana Chatterjee. Call is a Kashmiri scholar, author and academic from London. Angana Chatterjee is a feminist historian who co-founded the International People's Tribunal on Human Rights and Justice in Kashmir. Both told a vastly different story than Taku Singh. The narrative they told was still one of violence, but not necessarily war and not war between India and Pakistan. They instead focused on the violence by the Indian government
0: in Kashmir, especially gender-based violence, and the constant trauma caused by
1: living under occupation in Kashmir. Kaul's view on American journalism in Kashmir, especially in the past year, was very positive. Journalism had the ability to hold the Indian government accountable.
3: Well, I think American media is uh, um, is diverse, and certainly there are uh, uh, sections of the American media that have done a very good job of reporting the situation as it has been developing over the last few months, and especially since the 5th of August 2019, from New York Times to Washington Post, New Yorker, and others who have done really good reportage, actually. So, uh, and and this is also one reason why many of, men, much of American media that reports Reports critically on the situation in Kashmir uh, is uh, seen as problematic within the Indian right-wing nationalist discourse, and it's seen as something that's uh, that that the the human rights critique and all of that and drawing attention to the political problem of Kashmir is seen as something that's part of a Western agenda within the Indian uh, Hindu nationalist, sorry, within the Hindu nationalist Indian sphere.
0: Here, we see another us-and-them narrative emerge, not one of Pakistan versus India, but of the West versus India.
1: Within these versus narratives, language often becomes a key point of argument. Kahl explains.
3: For Kashmiris, uh, they say that it is an occupation, but the UN terminology is that it is Indian-administered Kashmir. So, likewise, there would be people who would say it is an annexation. Uh, but certainly, you know, it is uh, whichever perspective one adopts. The, the fundamental fact is that the constitution was changed in a manner that uh, does not uh, that does not sit at ease with any any entity that calls itself a democracy.
0: Much of the conversation surrounding Kashmir, especially in India, is whether the abrogation
1: of Article 370 is constitutional. Angana Chatterjee spoke to this idea.
6: Article 370, therefore, could be understood as the product of the state of Jammu and Kashmir negotiating its terms of membership with the Union of India, representing the solemn compact between the two. Neither the central government of India nor the government of Jammu and Kashmir could. Could amend or terminate Article 370 unilaterally. The two parties must come to a consensus following the terms provided in the Article. However, not long after the adoption of the Constitution, the government of India began qualifying the protections in Article 370, all of which extend, of course, to Jammu and Kashmir, through the central government's authority to dismiss elected state governments and appropriate the latter's legislative powers. Between 1954 and 1994, for example, a total of 47 presidential orders under Article 370 applied 260 and 395 articles of the Constitution of Jammu and Kashmir. The first presidential order of 1954 extended this Indian legislature's ability to enact laws on all subjects included in the union list, Uh, on and on subsequent presidential orders extended the arm of most laws of the indian republic to jammu and kashmir leaving within codes virtually no central government central indian institution that did not extend to kashmir especially significant were the uh, presidential orders of 1964 and 65 in which articles of the indian constitution were extended to jammu and kashmir that allowed the central government to dismiss state governments replace governors with new ones elected by New Delhi, and take over state legislative powers. So as we can see, its authority, the authority of Article 370, had already been eroded upon. But, however, it represented a line in the sand. It represented that the Kashmir issue had not been resolved and this article in the Indian Constitution was a placeholder acknowledging that a resolution was yet to take place. In arbitrarily dismissing, nullifying 370, Mr. Modi acted, uh, Mr. Modi's government acted unconstitutionally because they did so without the consent, without seeking the consent of those they govern, which are the subjects of Jammu and Kashmir.
0: We begin to see, through Chatterjee and Call's interviews, a much more complicated history of Kashmir, one that directly focuses, rather than distracts from, the treatment of Kashmiris by the Indian government,
1: both before and after August 2019. Both Call and Chatterjee addressed the claim that terrorism, or the threat thereof, was the backbone of the Indian government's decisions. On the topic of the communications blackout and whether it was a response to terrorism, Chatterjee stated...
6: What it does is it actually curtails the capacity of Kashmiris to talk to each other. Unless the, the stance of the government of India is that every Kashmiri is a terrorist, uh, which would be highly problematic and dangerous, right?
1: Here we see why it is extremely unjust for journalism to dabble in generalizations, focusing on the few people who have committed terrorist acts as opposed to the many who simply live their lives in Jammu and Kashmir. We wanted to conclude this episode by focusing on these lived experiences,
0: the voices that are often missing from these conversations, what it's actually like to be in Kashmir.
1: Notably, it was much harder to find somebody to speak to whose family was Kashmiri Muslim and had grown up in Kashmir under Indian occupation.
0: Somebody we spoke to, who wanted to remain anonymous and not be recorded, described a number of components of lived experience in Kashmir. Constant surveillance.
1: Not having the freedom to speak your mind. Seeing people constantly describe Kashmir as an Islam issue.
0: Or a Pakistan versus India issue.
1: He describes a process in which each generation living in Kashmir develops a sense of memory from witnessing violence and military abuse that India has, quote, gone mad. And how local newspapers often struggle to report on violence because of repression and economic difficulties. He introduced us to a coalition which reports on violence in Kashmir, the Jammu-Kashmir Coalition for Civil Society. In a report, they recently said, quote, Among the 43
0: civilians killed in the first half of 2019, 14 were killed by Indian armed forces and police. 12 were killed by unidentified gunmen. Eight civilians died after falling victim of cross-line of control shelling in the border areas of the region of Azad, Jammu, and Kashmir. Five civilians were killed by suspected militants. Three died due to explosion, while the agency responsible for the killing of two civilians remains unknown. Both police and militants blamed each other for these two killings. One soldier for every 11 citizens in Kashmir. This is all to say that while international reporting on Kashmir spiked during the communication blackout after the abrogation of Article 370, Violence, tension, and Indian militarization existed in Kashmir long before that.
1: The person who talked to us said that international media response was not anticipated. In earlier years, increases in violence often made little fanfare in the international community. Still, with all this new reporting, he wondered, What changes on the ground? How can journalism help expand the ways we talk about this, to historicize it, to put it into a context of Kashmiri agency?
0: I guess one way is to go back to what Arti Taku Singh said, to develop a rich history. We can't do all of that in this podcast, but we'll begin. Kashmir's history
1: often begins in 1947. But at a recent teach-in hosted by Brown's Kashmir Solidarity Movement, a student and community member organization, they described how the history of Kashmir did not just begin with the creation of the Indian nation. The suggestion that Kashmir's history began in 1947 defines Kashmir solely by its relationship to India. In the 1930s, there was a movement for Azadi, which is a word for Kashmiri self-determination, spearheaded by popular movement and leader Sheikh Abdullah. During
0: decolonization, Kashmir was offered the chance of a plebiscite to choose between India and Pakistan. Due to an uprising, the Prince of Kashmir requested Indian support. By the time that the princely state was signed over to India in 1947 in the Articles of Accession, three rights were signed over—defense, external affairs, and communications. It was promised that Kashmir would get to create its own constitution. But after battles with Pakistan and changing political tides in India, the Indira Sheik Accords were signed in 1975, giving
1: more operating control to India— and leaving many Kashmiris frustrated with their diminishing political power. Peaceful democracy was established in Kashmir, but only pro-India parties were allowed to participate, building up to the 1987 elections where, despite popular sentiment for the anti-India Muslim United Front, MUF, a pro-India party won. The MUF chose to contest the 1987 election. This situation escalated violence, with more than 300,000 soldiers arriving in the 1990s. In the 2005 earthquake, unmarked mass graves were unearthed by humanitarian workers, suggesting that the scale of violence was far more than had previously been thought. Wow. A lot gets hidden and a lot gets left out. I don't know how to make sense of all this history. How do we sort out a narrative of Kashmir? Maybe there isn't a single narrative. But what's important is to
0: recognize the power that different viewpoints have. I guess, if anything,
1: we've shown how complicated it really is. How it often gets generalized into prejudice. How Kashmiri agency often gets removed. And perhaps recognizing this is the first step to fighting against it. This
0: has been an episode of BP Radio. We would like to thank our distinguished guests, Arthi Taku Singh, Purna Singh, Angana Chatterjee and Natasha
1: Cull, as well as those who shared their first hand experiences with us. Special thanks to the podcast associates who made this episode possible Leela Berman, Michael Sayawane, Catherine Nelly, and Jack Thomas Dowdy.